Hey Rodney, did you know Slack's been a part of the Ready for as long as I have? You mean like back in the Bryant Park days? You know it. Even when there were only a couple of us working out of a cafe in Midtown, Slack is where we came together to tackle the future of work. Over eight years later, we're fully decentralized across eight time zones, and we still do it all with Slack. That's right, because it's the AI-powered platform for growing your business, keeping your teams connected, and making work legitimately simpler. Now you can get up to speed on a new project with one-click summaries or find exactly what you need, when you need it, with an AI-supercharged search function. It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future. Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. These companies remind me of parents whose kids have gone off to college and they keep the room just right so that when she comes home every time, every yes. weekend, yes. it's like she's, she's not coming need home. need her in sync posters. <laughs> <laughs> like she's out having fun. And then when the kid comes home, it's like really awkward and wow, wow. and everyone feels like it's it's not a right fit. And like they go back into their own toxic habits of like being around one another. And you're like, we, let's try something else, you know? Right. <laughs> but it takes a while. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Rodney Evans, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Aaron Dignan. Aloha. We are also joined by Anne Helen Peterson and Charlie Warzel, who we've gotten a lot of time to chat with as we got this podcast rolling today. <laughs> Anne writes the Substack newsletter, Culture Study, which is awesome. Everyone subscribe. And is a friend of the pod who joined us back in June to talk about burnout and toxic productivity culture. Charlie is a contributing writer at The Atlantic where he writes Galaxy Brain, a newsletter about technology, media, and politics. Their very exciting new book is called Out of Office, The Big Problem and the Bigger Promise of Working from Home. And Charlie, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having us. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the future of remote work and why the model we're currently living with isn't quite hacking it. But before we unpack that, we're going to check in. Although I have to warn our listeners, we've been talking for about 40 minutes. So we're pretty checked in over here. <laughs> but 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 they're not. But the listeners aren't. So let's, let's, let's bring, bring them, them on this journey with us. Okay. So our check-in question for today is, what is something that you would like to spend less time doing? And we will go Anne, Charlie, Aaron, moi. Um, okay, so the thing I would like to spend t- less time doing is my email. And I kind of oscillate back and forth between wanting to hire a personal assistant to grapple with all my email and mm. then thinking that if there's too much email, then maybe I've taken on too much for one person. <laughs> Is that the problem, right? <laughs> okay, that's mine. Amazing. This this might sound weird for me, but I, I want to spend a little less time like selling and more time working. And what I mean is with a newsletter and a book kind of all happening at the same time, there's a lot of like YouTube influencer, like don't forget to like and subscribe uh, that I've been <laughs> doing out there. And it's, you know, I, I know it's got to be done, but sometimes it feels like you do more of that than the work that you actually do. And it's, I feel like I'm grading on everyone. So I would like to do a little, little more working, a little less selling. Smash that like button. I was just going to say that. <laughs> I've always wanted to say, y'all smash that like button on this podcast. <laughs> and now you've given me an opportunity. To well, there you go. Yeah, Aaron, sorry. 
I fucked it up too. Go. That's okay. I'm I'm going to throw a twist at you all since you uh, heard my original thought on this. I've had a chance to reflect, and my my actual answer to this question is: I'd like to spend less time inside. I'm inside too much lately. I'm just like morning, noon, and night, and then I walk the dog at midnight, and I'm like, oh, it's so nice out here where the air is fresh. So I'm going to try to just completely ratchet in the other direction this winter. It's funny that you're saying that while we're both in closets. I mean, as far inside as I can possibly <laughs> so fucking <inside>. get. <laughs> um, for me, I would like to spend a little bit less time on social media specifically looking for things that make social media worth consuming, which do exist, particularly on Twitter, which is where I find out a lot of things that are important. But I have to get through a lot of nonsense to find those things. And so I just like them served to me so I could consume them (laughs) all in less than 10 minutes a day, for example. Amazing. Me too. Okay, let's jump in. So today's topic is the problems and promises of remote work, really the topic of the year, maybe the decade. And I guess we want to start by asking you about your own relationship to remote work. So you both once worked for media companies in New York City before moving to Montana and now the West Coast, apparently on an island and beginning your own work from home journeys. So how did you each deal with that shift? And maybe Anne, you can go first and Charlie, you can play on top of that. Yeah. So for me, going back to working from home was not that hard because I had been an academic before and Mm. academics really, you know, I think sometimes we don't include them in the bucket of people who work from home Mm. because they often do go onto campuses, but they really have like flexible schedules in terms of apart from classroom obligations, which ultimately are not that many in the grand scheme of the week, they get to figure out, you know, do I want to be in this office? When do I want to go into the office? That sort of thing. But with that flexibility comes the pressure, particularly as academia has become more and more precarious to work all the time. And so when I say that I had a lot of practice with working from home, I had a lot of practice with working all the time and having very few boundaries between work and the rest of my life. So it was actually more of a shock when I had to start going into the office every day when I lived in New York. I was like, wait, you're saying that at 4 p.m. on a Friday no matter what, I still have to be in the office. Like this is just (laughs) how it is. But then I don't have to be in the office on Sunday. (laughs) You know, I just, it wasn't Uh the same rhythms of of how I worked. And I also just thought like the, the, the compulsion of being in an office when you are no longer able to do good work has been a weird one for me. But then going back to Montana, Charlie can really take the reins here talking about our bad work habits. <laughs> so I'm I, I this surprises some people but I'm actually like an office person. Like I enjoy the I'm an extrovert. I enjoy and get sort of, you know, energy from from being around other people. And it's also very helpful for me as someone who can start to feel insecure about my status and role at the job to have people around who are like, hey, we enjoy that you're here. So when we moved, I was really nervous. I mean, it's ex- it was exciting to think about maybe working from home, but I also thought that a lot of my like, you know, the secret sauce of my skills and abilities were just, you know, fostered by the collaborative environment of the office. Um, mm-hmm. So I compensated for that by working all of the time. Like <laughs> I, it was like basically like, 
I'm I'm only going to work in order to preserve the perk of being able to work from home. Mm. And that kind of total collapse. And I think I, I think, you know, Annie did this too to some degree, but for me it was it was really sort of way more acute. The complete and total collapse of that after about six months, it was like, okay, nothing about this is tenable. And we started to think, you know, as a as a household unit, like how do we actually take advantage of this privilege that we have instead of just simply working all the time to preserve it. And so mm. that that's really what kind of led us down this path to start thinking kind of critically about what our work lives are like. Well, that that leads very nicely into a question we wanted to ask you. So your book begins with the statement, whatever you were doing during the pandemic and in its stilted aftermath, it was not working from home. I imagine that that will actually surprise some people because if we haven't been doing that, what have we been doing? Like, what's the half-assed version of remote work that we've been kind of muddling through? So the best answer is that every person has been working with the expectation that things are going to change very soon, right? Mm. And like that happened even in the the first weeks of the pandemic, there was this assumption, which is so funny in hindsight. <laughs> There's this assumption that we were like, okay, in a few weeks, we'll be back in the office. 100. Right? <laughs> I was like, we better not make any other plans because I'm going to have to start traveling kids. for work again in like right? 10 days. Yeah. Um, and, and that meant that people kept pushing the ball down the road or whatever metaphor you want to say to communicate that like people just didn't make long-term plans about changing their work setup or their plans, you know, all those sorts of things that all felt very temporary. And then I think also because a lot of kids were doing remote schooling and depending on your family's health needs and, and risk understanding like there's just a lot of kids who were at home at the same time while you were working and that's impossible it is just so mm. impossible um anyone that i know who tried to juggle those things just ended the year or the months that they did that f- feeling like a uh, sponge that had been wrung out and torched and flushed on the toilet and <laughs> so i think that that's that's a big part of it charlie can add more here too yeah i mean i i think to some degree the whole promise <laughs> from the you know the the catchy subtitle right the whole promise of this is that we reimagine our work lives and and make them better right more more suited to to enrich our lives to delight us to let us focus on the things that we care about and the transition during the pandemic was just all about like like literal survival and there was nothing joyful about it and and nothing intentional too right like we were all just kind of to throw mixed metaphors out there everywhere like to building the plane as you're flying it right Mm -hmm. we're muddling through like you said and the real idea again sort of based off of our own lives is like you can be working from home while not, you know, engaging in flexible work. And the flexible work part comes from intention and it comes from design and it comes from asking yourself really difficult questions about what you value, taking that kind of stock and inventory and and then sort of matching your values and your organization's values with the 
the, the work that you have to do and what work needs to be done, et cetera. So it's, it's this really kind of like mindful process that you have to go through. And what we did during the pandemic was we were just trying to survive. And right. so it wasn't that at all. So let's let's dig into that a little bit. The the idea of, you know, the problems plaguing work from home in its current iteration. How does the current model get it wrong aside from the fact that we were all kind of white knuckling and and imagining that we'd be somewhere else? What did we actually do that that kind of created some of those negative patterns? And then on the flip side, what does done right look like? What does that promise if we actually get it right? What should that feel like? I mean, if you come up with the answer to that second one, <laughs> you're going to make so much money telling companies what to do. <laughs> we, you know, we kind of attempt to get at some of the ways that you can try to get it right in the book. But I think the the fundamental thing is that the book is less about giving you a solution right now, because whatever solution you come up with is still going to kind of fall apart unless mm-hmm. you diagnose whatever was wrong with your company before you started working remote and flexibly. Does that make sense? Um, But I think the big thing that a lot of people did with remote work was respond to anxiety and stress by trying to figure out how to evidence that they were working more. Totally. And so for a lot of people that meant, you know, LARPing on Slack. So live action role playing your job by just like, evidencing that you are present and typing on Slack. It meant sending more emails and it especially meant setting up more meetings. Mm -hmm. And one of the most interesting findings I think in the book is like a company that tracks how many meetings people set each week that like they work with companies to try to reduce the meetings, but they also have a lot of data about the average number of meetings that were set in different organizations over the course of the pandemic. And you can see these points where like kids go back to school or kids are are back in school and parents are dealing with remote schooling. The way that people responded to the anxiety and stress of that, this was in like September of the first year of the pandemic, was mm-hmm. they set more meetings, right? <laughs> right? Like <laughs> the thing that they needed to do less, which is fill each other's time with meetings was you know, they did the exact opposite. They set more meetings to try to show like, okay, this is really, really hard, but I want to show that I'm working. Yes, yes. It's funny, the 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 things you just said remind me of two kind of tropes that I'm constantly harping on. One is that working remotely is varsity compared to working in the office, which is junior <laughs> varsity. And so whatever, like if you were okay at kicking the soccer ball in the office, you're going to be rubbish at it remotely. And so the, there is, there's just like a higher stakes thing. And the second thing that your point about this performative LARPy work, it reveals to me how much inefficiency, frankly, and I don't mean that in like a let's all work all the time and be productive, but just there was a lot of waste in the office culture that was a way of being performative and being present without actually necessarily doing anything that now we have to replicate in the remote space. And so it's funny to me, to your point about whatever was wrong before is wrong now. Yes. And it's turned up to 11 because remote is harder. Yeah. I mean, I I think this is, (laughs) this is something that we realized talking, doing all our reporting, talking to different people at different companies who are getting it wrong, but also the ones who, who are sort of onto something and who are designing really, again, intentional and, and thoughtful plans for, for remote work. Like remote work, you're right, in the, the varsity sense, it is 
harder to execute because you can't just like throw people into it and expect them to be okay. It's not just like a thing you do. It's a new way of working. But because of like the friction of not being able to just like walk over and interrupt somebody, you know, and tap them on the shoulder and demand something from them, you know, you have to be much more thoughtful about what you're doing, how you approach people. And so the companies that get this right are actually creating much more human workflows, right? So if you take like a company, like uh, like Slack is doing this, the distributed software company, GitLab is doing this, they have these like employee readme files where employees like write basically in little instruction manuals about how best to like work with them. You know, this is the time of day when I'm like super busy with kids and family obligations and you're probably mm-hmm. not going to reach me. This is the time of day when I'm like, you know, most fresh and like creative and receptive to new ideas. If you want to pitch me, you know, on on working on a project together, like this is the best way to do it. And that's like a lot of upfront work for every employee to write that about themselves. And it's a lot of in the moment work for other employees to read that and to internalize it. But what you're doing is you're like seeing your coworkers as human beings who are different and varied and not just vessels for work or like a box to check in order to get something out the door and shipped or whatever. And and that's what I think is is really the key around all of this, which is that remote work is harder. There's more friction and it forces you to, you know, treat people more humanly and with more respect. Yeah. I, I think the the points that both of you made, what they also bring up for me as a person who hasn't worked full time in an office in a long Mm -hmm. time, like 10 years, I don't know, something like that is I, I think one of this, like, what I see right now and companies that are doing things well tactically, Charlie, to your point, it's like, we love user manuals to me. I think that making the implicit explicit is dope and people just being attentive to ways of working and making agreements as teams, like certainly a great step. And it's a very tactical step, which like most companies haven't made, let's be honest. So it's a great place to start. But to <laughs> me, like the higher order thing that I think makes people really good or or workforces really good that are remote or hybrid is more time and more skill around sensing what's going on in a system. And by that, I mean, like, are the Slack channels quiet around particular things? Are there things that like seem to just be dragging? Are there meetings that seem really dominated by one or two people? Are there things that are performative or poorly attended? And not not doing that in like a gross measurement-y, how are we going to like beat them into submission, but in a way that's like, okay, like let's pay attention to the how of this and see what we might try. And I haven't seen many companies get there yet. Yeah. There's totally just like still figuring out when are we going back into the office, <laughs> right? Like they're so fixated on like, is it January six? Like when? Are, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. But when are we going back? <laughs> yeah, like, like there, or or even just like when are we? Because some companies have been back in some capacity for a long time, or some yeah. some companies tried something in September, like in the summer, and then very quickly we're like, well, nope, not gonna do that, and are back yeah. again. And so I still feel like the overarching question is is when, mm-hmm. and that has made it so that again, people aren't thinking about these larger points that, I I mean, your point is absolutely correct. 
but that like it requires hard work. It requires yeah. time and even space to yeah. have that sort of insight. And most people are still treading water. And that's something I think we're forgetting. These yeah. companies remind me of parents who have kids have gone off to college and they keep the room just right so that when she comes home every time, every yes. weekend, yes. it's like she's not coming need home. need her in six posters. <laughs> <laughs> like she's out having fun. <gasps> and then when the kid comes home, it's like really awkward and wow, wow. and everyone feels like it's it's not a right fit. And like they go back into their own toxic habits of like being around one another. And you're like, we, let's try something else, you know? Right. Take <laughs> but it takes a while. So you underscore a lot in the book that working from home isn't a silver bullet. And I think it's funny because not only has it been a plague, but it's also been like the answer to everything. And and so all the toxic BS of office work can still be reproduced, of course, in our own homes if we just move that that culture over. And that's very much what has happened. So why didn't the where of work change the how more in your view as you looked at the space as a whole? Why wasn't it like a jumping off point for a reflection and a reconsideration? I mean, I, I think because a lot of people at the top of these organizations don't really want to change the how, you know, the how the how works for a lot of people. And it's really interesting. I, I brought this up with someone who works in, in human resources consulting, and we were remarking on how how interesting it is that like as companies a lot of companies you know always talk about being nimble and being dynamic and being you know super reactive to their industries and where those things are moving and 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 to the market in in whatever way like all those buzzwords agile etc cetera, etc cetera. and then when it comes to like doing the same thing internally it's like no 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 we're an ocean liner <laughs> sure. right like you this thing does not turn quickly like you sure. you know you're it's going to it's going to be it's going to be really difficult and and i think it's really interesting uh, that and telling that that that's that that's how it works yeah i i think it's it's very broadly that that this is this is probably the most remote work or, you know, a flexible work environment is most immediately threatening to executives and managers at the top. And, and I'll, and I'll add, you know, like the, the, the bad ones, true, <laughs> because it does, it forces you to need to use a lot of different skills. And it speaks to the point from just before about like a lot of sensing, right? Like a lot of a lot of managers who pride themselves on being like really good at working the office floor, right? You know, and picking up on the vibe there are now like, well, mm -hmm. I can't do that. I can't right. manage mm. remotely. But it's like, yeah, yeah, you can. It's just a lot like it requires a lot less like I peek out from my office and sort of, you know, take a look at what people are doing. And it's, I get on the phone and I call people and I check in, I model vulnerability in the hopes that other people will be vulnerable with me and that it builds trust. But like those things are hard and it's so much easier to just say what we've been talking about, which is like, well, you'll all be back soon. Don't mm -hmm. worry. Yeah. Yeah. And what's always funny to me about those conversations is that executive level people in most companies are very accustomed to enjoying flexible work. It's just mm -hmm. not codified anywhere. Like for the yeah. most part, when you talk to someone who has 
ascended to that altitude of a large company, they basically like do whatever the fuck they want in terms yeah. of like when they go into the <laughs> yeah, office yeah. and which day they go to their kids' yeah. soccer game and like, you know, when they call people at 10 p.m. because they just want to like, because they had a neato idea that they want to discuss. It's just that <laughs> it's just that the idea of other people enjoying that same kind of flexibility to, freaks them out. Yeah. Well, and this is actually one of the first interviews that I did for the book was with a guy who like, it was ostensibly about real estate and like New York and the future of real estate and offices. And he, I just got him talking about a bunch of other stuff and he was like flexibility broadly conceived. And he's like, yeah, the C-suite has had flexibility forever. Right. And it's, they right. just, like you said, they do not conceive of what they have as something that can be transferred to other people, right? <laughs> that it's others like, should have. It's like only for leaders or something like well, that, you know? Also, I mean, to be more cynical about it, I think they they realize exactly what it is, which is power. It's yeah. a and, privilege, yeah. And and it's it's not <laughs> wanting to sort of distribute that power equally because then you have less power. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. And you know, it's funny because it, it really dovetails to this to this next thing we were curious about, which is, there's been a kind of a chorus of moans and groans from some corporate leaders that I won't name about work from home and hybrid work and what we lose when we're not in the, you know, poorly lit conference room together. Um, but did, what did the vast majority of managers actually have to let go of during this transition? We moved to the remote space. What did they actually lose? Did any old patterns or hierarchies actually transform or is it all just, you know, kind of pomp and circumstance? Well, I think one thing they lost the ability to do is to manage through presence, <laughs> right? Management like, by walking around. Yes, management by walking around or management by like eyes on someone else. And that the way that you understand if you if someone is doing a good job, the way that you perceive achievement or performance is by like whether or not they are present and in the office. And that leads to another quote from the book, which is that the future of managing, the future of remote work is managers actually figuring out how to manage. And I think it's easy sometimes to rag on managers who don't have these skills or have relied on surveillance management for most of their careers. But most people don't know what management is because in a lot of companies, and especially in newer companies, management is something that is tacked onto your other jobs, right? Like if you are the person on your team who is the highest performing, they're like, oh, would you like to be promoted to, to manager, right? Like, would you like to do all of the things that you were already doing? But also, even though you have no evidence to aptitude for managing other people, would you be a manager? Like, this is how we're going to give you some more money. And so people say yes, even though they generally don't want to be managers, right? This is not a, like something that they know how to do or that they want to do, but it's the only route towards advancement. And then you have this big pool of people who don't really know how to manage, don't really like to manage, don't have the time to manage, <laughs> but are in charge with managing. And so I think for a lot of organizations, what happened in the pandemic is really bad management while they try to figure out how to transfer those skills or make them evident in any way. But then mm. some places too are trying to figure out what this is going to look like moving forward, right? Like what does it look like to actually make management visible, to make it into more of a skill that we're going to concentrate on and to have to figure out how to do it in an active way instead of in a passive one. Yeah. And just to 
to add to that because you know the answer that came to my mind, Aaron, as you asked that question is, yeah, I think that what a lot what I have seen a lot of managers and leaders truly have to let go of is the belief that the old way was the only way. Mm. Like as much as they as as I've seen people hang on in ways that are dysfunctional, like for the most part, those people have made themselves miserable as well. It's not just right, that they're right, making their employees right. miserable. And so I say this because as a person who's in the world talking about new ways of working a lot pre pandemic, you know, I would say we were still in the like early adopter ish, early majority yeah. phase where like there were people who were primed and kind of interested and very open. And I would say a lot more people that I talk to now, even if they're not convinced that like our way or the self-managing way is the right way, they sure as shit know the way they've been trying to do it for two years is not the deal. And there's an, there's an awareness and an openness that didn't exist before that I think is just based on a really shitty lived experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I also think that around that awareness that the way we've been doing it isn't working is an acceptance that that there are probably ways that will work and that this is a little bit more inevitable because it did feel so fringy to be all remote or remote first, you know, in 2017 or 2018. And then because everybody had to go through it and kind of did it shittily, now there's a sense of like, well, that's there's no judgment. In, in being, you know, and operating that way. And so that gives space to then figure it out. Yeah, totally. If you love what you're hearing and love the fact that we get amazing guests to come back here for a second time, which we did with <laughs> Anne miraculously, a review would mean so much. Or here we go. Smash that like button. Oh, I did it. Okay. I'm not sure there really is one, but you know, whatever. There, what, don't ruin my day. This, this, that was the highlight. So you both arranged the book around four concepts, flexibility, culture, technologies of the office, which is a great band name, and community. Why focus on those four? How did you break that down and, and sort of arrive at those pillars? Oh, man, that's that's a pretty good question. I mean, it's always kind of slightly arbitrary with a topic like this, how you, sure. how you organize a, a book, because this is quite literally about everything right it's it's <laughs> there's it's like a large the topic of work just like work itself right just kind of expands to fill absolutely I everything mean, uh, that it can i think you know a big part of this book was to try to look at where where we came from and the history of of a lot of this stuff to sort of see how we got to this this point you know I mean, we're there right now where, where work just feels just so kind of the corrupted and, and untenable for, for most people. And so those were areas, um, with like culture and, and flexibility and then the technologies that enable it, that sort of allowed us to kind of hopefully, uh, succinctly trace a lot of that. And then community is sort of the, I think the, the, the forward facing part of it um, mm. and the part of it that's sort of like the, like the, so what to all of this, right? Like, what are we, you know, if, if we're actually going to try to make these changes, like, what are we doing? What are we doing that for? What is that in service of? If you do free up time and space, like what is important? And like, I, I think a big thing to, to remember about this whole book and, and a place to ground it is that like, this is a, this is a book 
that is sort of aimed at a subset of, you know, of people who have the privilege to do these types of jobs that allow for flexibility just to begin with. Mm -hmm. And so if we're going to change that up to make them, you know, to allow us to have more three-dimensional lives and and do things, it's like, then then what do we do with that privilege? Like, how do we, mm -hmm. how do we make it so that this can lift other people up and, and make their circumstances better. And the community element is basically trying to say, like, if you are able to use that privilege of decentering work in your life, what's the end goal of that? And, and one of them is, well, being more tethered to other people, conceiving of yourself in a different way, not as a quote unquote knowledge worker, but as labor mm -hmm. in order to build solidarity with others who don't have that flexibility and privilege. Right, right. It does seem like each chapter's focus influences and impacts the others, but there does seem to be a very particular dance between flexibility and culture. And so you wrote in the book, this will be the recurring question from leaders, managers, and employees alike. Sure, we'd love to give people more flexibility with where and how they work, but what about our company culture? Mm. Can you just talk a little bit about how these ideas relate to each other? Yeah, I think that there is this over-indexing of presence in understanding how company culture can work. And part of that is really natural that that was <laughs> how it worked before. It feels really unimaginable to, to create any sort of culture around like how we talk on Slack now. Right. Mm -hmm. And right. I get that. I get that. But at the same time, I think that a lot of the norms or a lot of the things that people like celebrate as company culture were pretty toxic and exclusionary norms. Right. Like there's what a company says its company culture is, which is almost always like all really beautiful words about like nimble, experimenting, inclusive, you know, I don't sure. know, innovative. There's like innovative is always there somewhere. <laughs> and then there's the actual company culture, which is how like employees gossip to one another about what standards are for each other at the yeah. company. And, you know, if your company culture was you need to be in your seat the longest amount of time and whoever does that the most and whoever like is best at responding quickest the, those are the people that advance, <laughs> you know, that's a toxic company culture. And that can be ported over very easily into a remote only schedule, right? But the bigger thing that we think about with the, this larger question of culture is trying to think about what was there before, right? And what kind of culture did presence promote? And usually it was one that is can be tracked back to the origins of the office, which is like a very masculine and a very white and a very uh -huh. able-bodied and neurotypical culture. Uh -huh. So that question right there. And then also trying to imagine, drawing on examples from a lot of companies who have already figured this out, what a remote or flexible culture could look like. You know, it's, it's funny. Seth Godin says culture is people like us do things like this, which I think is the <laughs> easiest, shortest definition. And and so it's very easy then to talk about, all right, well, people like us do things like this in the office was, you know, a little bit of light surveillance and drinking after work and a lot of the other dynamics and biases that you just talked about, as well as some, you know, good serendipitous informal stuff. Um, and and now when you port that into the internet or, or you know, a new environment, it's just 
a different set of behaviors and patterns. It's not as if culture doesn't emerge. And anyone who spends five minutes on Twitter or a Discord or a Slack knows that culture is alive and well on the internet. It's just a different, you know, form or flavor. So I think I think it's a false false question, but it is about what do you value? Um, speaking of that, you know, this show values self-management and and self-organization and autonomy and and transparency at work and in that work we often are arguing and battling against the myth that that means easy chill undisciplined unstructured Mm -hmm. work when in reality it requires more structure and more deliberateness and more thoughtfulness and more trust and so we, we noticed a similar idea come up over and over again in your book where you were writing things like Truly flexible work may seem breezy and carefree, but it's actually the product of careful planning and clear communication. So how do we get smarter about solving those gnarly underlying problems instead of just glossing over the aesthetic ones? Like, what does it mean to actually do that careful planning and clear communication? And how do we incentivize actually doing that work, which is hard and often uncomfortable? I, th- I think one of the, the the crucial things is part of that communication, I should say, is making sure that everybody knows and is very clear about what their job is. That sounds really silly, but but it's it's what is expected of you in this job by the people who evaluate your performance. <laughs> because, mm-hmm. you know, having someone who doesn't evaluate your performance tell you doesn't give you necessarily that confidence, right? That, that you're actually yeah. doing what you need to do. So very explicit understandings, and whether that's reevaluating, you know, job descriptions or whatever for workers, that's, in, that's, that's a very big part of it. And it's very simple. There's a lot of people out there who don't know precisely what it is that they have to do every day in order to, you know, excel and and you know and, and feel that kind of job security which is a huge thing when you're constantly worried that you know getting laid off could terminate your health care and send you into a you know financial tailspin but then it, it goes all the way up the ladder right like what, the thing that we were talking on with talking about with the add-on management is like there are so many people out there who are managers who either don't know really that they're managers, think that they might be managers, but they're (laughs) not totally sure. They don't know how to manage because they haven't actually gone through any training in how to manage. Mm. That's a very big one. And if you don't know how to manage, then what that comes down to is you, you probably don't know the right ways to communicate to your employees. And so you can't if you can't really communicate effectively with your employees about what their job is and 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 what they should what everyone should expect of each other, you can't form any trust. Like this whole idea of 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 remote work is powered by trust. And the reason why we're all having a lot of difficulty right now is because in the workforce between employees and employers, there's like very low levels of trust just everywhere. You know, employers aren't trusting employees to work from home without, you know, dicking around or whatever. Mm -hmm. And employees don't trust that management has their best interests at heart or that they aren't going to just, you know, immediately fire them for some, you know, random thing. And so what needs to happen in this is, is people need to really have a lot of that transparent like very sort of bait, like getting back to first principles, right? What is my, mm-hmm. what is my job? What is expected of me? Here's what's expected of you. What do you expect of me, the manager? How do I best manage you? All those different things sound so like simple and like basic, but like in a lot of places, that's why there's this like rot 
in the company culture. It's because these very basic first principle things are broken or, you know, aren't in aren't working the way that they should. And that makes the actual work, the creativity, the problem solving, the difficult conversations that, you know, that come up in the process of building a company, none of that works if the foundation that it's upon is it's quicksand. And so I, I think that is sort of the fundamental first thing is everyone needs to kind of like go back to listening to each other and, and talking it out and get those, those sort of first principles of what is it that I do? What is expected of me? What do I expect of you? I love that. Uh, we're big fans of first principles over here. Uh, (laughs) we've talked a lot about why all of this is being done like garbage and everything has to be reconsidered and reimagined so that we don't continue. And I'd like to give the humans out there a little bit of inspiration as we wrap this thing up. So in the book, there are a lot of stories of people running no shit experiments around remote work and doing really, really cool stuff, like really kick ass new ways of working. What are some examples of that 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 really stood out to both of you that you think could inspire some experimentation out in the world? Good question. Some of the ones, and these aren't necessarily all in the book, they're just because a lot of stuff has come up over the past like six months since the book has emerged. Mm-hmm. Still, you should buy the book, clearly, but um, everybody get the book. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the, the companies that I'm really interested in and aren't necessarily doing like all remote anything, like, you know, there's a lot of places that, are, that have been doing that for a while and are admirable, and there have been a lot of profiles written of them especially in the early days of the pandemic when everyone was desperate for examples but like i like companies that are experimenting with genuine four-day weeks and those companies are not just thinking about okay how do we decide whether or not we are going to force our employees to come in on fridays they're thinking more in terms of these first principles of how much work is there how long does it take to get done when do we need people to actually be in synchronous communication with one another, even in phys- whether in physical spaces or um, online. And then how do we actually make our job a sustainable job? How do we retain people? How do we make our product something that always feels innovative and light? It's by creating a, a rhythm of, of work that provides space for actual rest and recuperation. And mm-hmm. I, I just think that so many people really recoil at the idea of a four hour week and immediately go to the idea that it has to be like four 10 hour days when right. there's really fascinating ex- like experiments out there showing that it, it can lead to more productivity, it can lead to better product, and it certainly leads to better worker happiness and retention. Yeah, I, I, I it's hard because I think we're, it's hard to list like really inspiring examples in because of the fact that like a a lot of, a lot of companies are are doing this sort of quietly because mm-hmm. I think there's the expectation that like there's going to be failures and sure. I don't I mean I I spent a lot of time covering the tech industry in my in my career and and there's you know there's a lot of like <laughs> sort of BS around or, or like overvaluation around like, yeah, we want, all we want to do is fail, like fail all the time, <laughs> which is like, you know, it's like, no, you don't. It's a thing. <laughs> yeah. But I, I do think that like the best companies here are humble in the sense that they know that whatever, whatever the thing, whatever the design looks like right now is going to need to be like 
probably severely tweaked in the coming days or months or whatever. Um, I, you know, I, the reason why I love the four day work week as well is there's this book by uh, Annie Murphy, Paul, the, the extended mind, I believe is, is the title. And it's, mm. and it's really, really fascinating because it's, it's basically about like the, the ways in which the brain actually works and processes. And it, the idea that like, you know, the brain is not a computer because the computer can just like do the same task whenever in any normal, in any circumstance that you give it, it doesn't matter what time of day, what, whatever. And, and the human brain is, is, is much different there and, and, and works almost like not, not at all like a computer. <laughs> and where I'm going with all this is this idea that like, a lot of the spaces that we've designed for ourselves and a lot of the, sort of the the systems, the office being one of them, but also just like the modern work week is designed for this like brain that is computer like that, you know, and humans who, who are sort of om- almost robotic in this way. You can show up the same time, you can do it. And if you put in this certain amount of hours in this certain amount of place, you get X output, but humans don't work that way. And I think what we're realizing is that like, like less work in a lot of these knowledge work industries is better work, right? It's, and, and it's how, you know, mm-hmm. if you think of, we draw a lot of parallels to, uh, you know, hearing about athletes and how they train, right? Athletes think of the rest day as a workout. It is conceived mm-hmm. of that because the rest of the, you know, their ability to perform hinges upon the proper and sort of like rigorous rest, right? Uh, and I think it's very similar f- for for work. So the thing that's really inspiring to me is that like there's there's science and psychology coming out that is sort of underwriting this idea that like we're just kind of conceiving as, of ourselves incorrectly as humans. It's like what like how how we perform best. And and I think that that's what's inspiring to me is that we can sort of broadly come to this this conclusion that like oh this model is obsolete for us as people. (laughs) (laughs) The realization that human (laughs) beings are not, in fact, robots is an incredibly powerful and poignant place to draw things to a close. So Anne and Charlie, where can our listeners find out more about you and your work? Well, they can Google. And if you Google us, like it always is like, Anne Helen Peterson, Charlie Warzel, married. And then the second one is um, Anne Helen Peterson, Charlie Warzel, dogs. Uh, and if you okay. want, if you want and pictures then after of that our it dogs. And becomes very not family Keep scrolling. Like feet and like horrible Google stuff. No, no, but the dogs, you can find those on our Instagram accounts, which are just both of our names. They are very good dogs. And uh, my newsletter, Culture Study, is Anne Helen at Substack.com, or you can just Google Culture Study. Yeah, I mean, probably the best way to like keep up with the minute day-to-day things would be via Twitter, but I'm not going to put that evil upon your listeners. So <laughs> I would say Galaxy Brain is my newsletter, which I just brought over to the Atlantic magazine. And yeah, that's probably like if you subscribe to that, you'll get a, a whole magazine's worth of stuff and me. So that's hopefully a good trade. Awesome. Thank you guys so much for coming and hanging with us through some technical challenges today. It was really fun. It was our total pleasure. Yeah, thanks so much. This is awesome. 
All righty, a quick tip of the hat to Taylor Marvin for making the three of us sound good, but that'll all work out in the end. Brave New Work <laughs> is produced by The Ready, where we help organizations around the world change the way they work, including getting out of the office. Get in touch with us by emailing podcast at theready.com. And as for you, thanks for listening. Now go change something. <laughs>